Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. The state of California moving to extend jobless benefits to strikers. Meanwhile, OSHA coming down on Dollar General. And today on the show, a labor scholar on the UAW and a possibility of a strike one week from today. And a labor historian from Cornell University. Welcome to the Thursday, September 7th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with John Russo. You may remember him, longtime contributor to America's Workforce. He's a visiting scholar at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor out of Georgetown University. John was also the founding member and co-director of the Center for Working Class Studies out of Youngstown State University along with conducting research on working class history, labor studies, urban studies, and deindustrialization, John helped design and taught in the first certified program in working class studies in the United States. In the United States. In uh, 2019, his blog, which is workingclassstudies.wordpress.com, published 43 posts that were read over 94,000 times by readers in 176 countries. Well, one of the things that John did over the years, he took a deep dive into the UAW back in the late 60s and 70s at the old Lordstown plant where they made the old Chevrolet Vega. That was a very militant time for auto workers, much like what's going on today with the big three. Let me bring you up to speed. Here's the latest, and we're talking a week out. There is a strike deadline on September 14th, one week from today. Ford presented a contract offer to the UAW after the union called the Detroit three automakers to come up with counter proposals. Now this offer includes 15% guaranteed combined wage increases and lump sums and enhanced benefits over the life of the contract for uh, UAW represented hourly workers Ford decided to increase wages and lump sum bonuses to 92,000 in the first year of the contract. That's up from 78,000 in 2022. Apart from an increase in wages and bonuses, workers would also receive health care coverage and other benefits. In the first year alone, full-time permanent employees at the top, this is the top wage rate, could make up to $98,000 from wages, bonuses, profit sharing, and overtime. You have to put all that together. Now, the union saying, okay, that's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. They want 40% over the next three, four years. And also, this is a big issue, an end to the two-tier wage system. Came across a story recently about a UAW member, a woman, at the uh, Jeep Wrangler plant in Toledo, Ohio. She's making $17.53 an hour assembling Jeep Wranglers 
and she's doing this on the night shift. She finishes at 3.30 in the morning. She is working next to people that are making two to three times that money because she's a new employee. Ford said, wait, wait a minute. You're doing the same kind of work. Come on here. In the meantime, the UAW has filed unfair labor charges against General Motors and Stellantis against Stellantis. That's the old Chrysler company. The head of the auto worker, Sean Fain, said that these two companies have refused to work with the union to reach a fair contract. General Motors and Stellantis have called the claim by Fain baseless. Now, in a tweet on the union's feed, Sean Fain said to the big three, hear this out. We're not just numbers on a spreadsheet or hands on an assembly line. We are the heart and soul of the auto industry. The UAW is back in the fight, the fight for economic and social justice. That's the new leader at the UAW. John's going to talk about that, and depending on time, we'll also talk about the uh, summer of strikes here, especially with the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA. And uh, to pick up on that theme, our second guest on the show today is a labor historian from Cornell University. I'll tell you, Cornell, talk about it. School with a history in itself. I mean, they go back, my gosh, 150, 160 years, and they have a school called Industrial Labor Relations. That's uh, one of their uh, subdivisions. And Eileen DeVault is professor of labor history. She uh, teaches classes on labor and working class history. She's also the author of two books, Sons and Daughters of Labor and United Apart, Gender and the rise of craft unionism. Her current research involves examining the impact of workers' family status on their workplace and union experiences between the years 1880 and 1930, and in the present. As part of this, she's working on a book manuscript which illustrates the complex ways in which the meanings of family changed as capital and workers have come together. So we'll talk, well, labor history. We'll also talk about the hot labor summer, about all the strikes, which industries are leading the organizing movement, and what trends she sees. So Eileen DeVault, labor historian at Cornell University's Industrial School of Labor Relations. She'll be our second guest. Now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. $17 billion in assets under advisement, serving the needs of Taft-Hartley funds, corporations, public funds, endowments, foundations, as well as religious organizations. Well, in response to several high-profile strikes by screenwriters, actors, and hotel workers in the state of California, lawmakers there are making last-minute efforts to pass a bill that would extend unemployment benefits to striking workers after two weeks off the job, which is definitely happening there with the writers and the actors and actresses. Current state law excludes workers from unemployment benefits if they leave work to go on strike. Now, a similar proposal failed in the California Senate four years ago. And now, even with a Democratic majority Senate and Assembly, they don't think it's going to happen. It has happened in the state of New York. A lot of the actors and actresses there are getting benefits, but not in the state of California. And you would think 
that wouldn't be the case. The Sixth Circuit ruled in favor of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to protect work safety regulations passed in the past 50 years. Listen to this. An Ohio general contracting company represented by Jones Day, which is a powerful law firm based in Cleveland, Ohio. In fact, many call it Trump's law firm. He has used a number of lawyers in his many legal cases from Jones Day. Well, they challenged that most OSHA rules were unconstitutional because the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 gave the agency too much discretion. (laughs) Okay, we're going back a lot of years here. Affirming the district court's decision, a two-to-one Sixth Circuit panel held that OSHA's rulemakings are, in fact, within the powers approved by lawmakers intended in the act. That's good to know. That's good to know. Challenge a law that's been very effective and saving lives. Speaking of OSHA, after being fined repeatedly for workplace safety violations in recent years, discount retailers Dollar Tree and Family Dollar have reached an agreement with federal regulators to address what inspectors found to be widespread hazards inside their stores. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration announced that two chains, the two chains will conduct a nationwide assessment to find the root causes that led to violations for blocked fire exits and other dangers and develop a plan to resolve them within two years. By the way, Dollar Tree acquired Family Dollar back in 2015. As part of the agreement, the company will pay $1.35 million to settle several open inspections and violations. When OSHA informed the company of a hazard in one of its stores, it'll have two days to fix the issue or face penalties up to a half million dollars. Dollar Tree will have to form advisory groups where workers can raise safety concerns and maintain a hotline where workers can report hazards without the fear of being retaliated against. Doug Parker, who comes from the Steelworkers, he's the head of OSHA, good guy, told reporters the discount chains had been acting in good faith to address the problem, so he was confident the arrangement would make the store safer. This is what Doug said. It's really intended to address the root causes of these hazards and how the operations of the company to date have contributed to those. We believe Dollar Tree has proposed to us a plan that's going to make a significant impact. Dollar Tree's chief operating officer, Mike Creedon, said, having worked with OSHA over the past several months on this agreement, we now look forward to continuously improving our programs to keep our people safe. Customers who've shopped in dollar stores are familiar with the huge stacks of unboxed merchandise that often litter the aisles and make it hard to navigate. OSHA has hit the retailers with a number of fines and publicized them for blocking exits, unsafely storing boxes, and cutting off access to fire extinguishers and electrical panels. Dollar Tree has been cited for infractions in Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Massachusetts, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Texas, and Wisconsin. OSHA says inspectors had identified more than 300 violations over the course of more than 500 inspections at both stores. And this is since uh, 2017. 
The agency has also repeatedly fined Dollar General, the other leading dollar store chain, for the same issues. Labor Department officials say they could not comment on any agreements it might be pursuing with Dollar General to address their citations. It's crazy what's going on here. And you know the workers are not making very much money at those locations. And one more here, the New York Times unions, we're talking about the Times Guild and the Times Tech Guild, have sent a cease and desist letter to management of the newspaper over a new return-to-office policy. Management announced that they would begin monitoring badge swipes when employees enter and leave the office building in order to track attendance. The New York Times Guild argues that this new form of surveillance violates their CBA, collective bargaining agreement with the paper while the Times Tech Guild argues that this violates the status quo period. The NLRB's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, showed increased concern about similar electronic surveillance practices in a letter which was publicized last October. Boy, I'll tell you, some bosses get a little bit crazy on overreach, no doubt about that. Quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the possibility of a UAW strike. Don't go away. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at afge.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Hey, this is Sean McGarvey, and I'm president of North America's Building Trades Unions, and I'm a proud listener of America's Workforce. I love this podcast. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, always connecting people with employment. And you can find more at ulagency.org. And if you missed yesterday's show, just go to uh, awfpodcast.com. We had a really good conversation with the executive director of the ULA. That would be Dave Meganhart. And they are offering for free, for free online classes. And there's like over 5,000 classes available to get you the education and skills, especially technical skills, to find a decent job. 
It's really a great service. Do check that out. Just go to ulagency.org. All right, let's go to a line number one and welcome a dear friend, longtime contributor to America's workforce over the years, especially when he was co-director of the Center for Working Class Studies out of Youngstown State University. John Russo has since retired, and he is now a visiting scholar at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor out of Georgetown University, where he uh, works with his wife, Sherry Lincoln, and she's an uh, English professor at Georgetown. And uh, one of the things that John did during his career was take a deep dive into the UAW, especially at Lordstown, Ohio, which was, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, and John, you could chime in here, it was kind of a rebellious time for the auto industry. We're talking back in the late 60s and 70s when the Chevy Vega came out, and there was a lot of militancy among the members, and a lot of that militancy is happening today, especially with the new leader of the UAW. John Russo, welcome back to America's Workforce. I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Why don't we go back and take a look at, at what happened at that plant and make some comparisons to what may happen a week from today. Go ahead. Well, it's kind of hard to make comparisons, especially because that plant is closed uh, for the most part. They tried to uh, put a another type of car in there, another company, but it's, it's, there's, it's shuttered for the most part, uh, other than a battery plant that's right nearby. Um, look at what happened in uh, 1970, 71, 72, in that particular era, was a very young workforce had been hired because the plant had opened in 1995, or 1965, excuse me. And uh, as a result of that, the values, I think, of the people who were coming in to work at that plant, who many of them were Vietnam vets, they, they, they were not going to take any crap from anybody. And General Motors at that point had a very conservative uh, management strategy. Uh, and the result was a major strike that became a sort of a cause celeb uh, for the labor movement uh, during that period. Uh, that evened out pretty much over the next decade, and uh, especially with the history of uh, uh, the Reagan administration and, and the economy that really went into a dumpster for a good part of the 1980s. Uh, I think that plan was instructive, and I think it's uh, very worrisome, you know, that other Plants like that might be affected today. There's still the question about outsourcing, although it's not as as big as it was before. But that area, Youngstown, uh, Warren, and Lordstown in particular, um, had a lot of suppliers and automotive suppliers, and like Delphi, and that they're largely not there anymore. So it's a, it's a the period's changing right now, and I think what's driving it right now is the move to EVs, because the EVs require fewer uh, parts. That means they require uh, less uh, subassembly and other types of operations. And so the background of this is that, it, you know, the industry is in flux as it moves to EVs, and that's going to change. UAW's got the issue of organizing the battery plants that are going to be associated with uh, the automobile uh, industry in the future as we move to EVs. So I think it's a very important uh, uh, negotiations because of the, the context in which 
uh, negotiations that are currently uh, occurring. There's been a lot of changes with the UAW since that time. They lost a lot of membership, and now they have a new leader who said he wants to put an end to this two-tier wage system. And at the uh, table just this week, four said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and the others are in the same category. With that being the case, I mean, we're a week out here. And 97% of the membership said they're ready to go on strike. With all that being said, how do you feel about that happening, John? I, it's, it's hard to say. Look, you got a new union president who barely won his election uh, four months ago. And so he's, he's under a lot of pressure to deliver good collective bargaining agreements. You got an industry that's changing very rapidly. In the negotiations in themselves, he's, the UAW has allowed all the demands from the local unions to come up over a thousand UAW demands, which is not uncommon because union can say, listen, we put your demand on the bargaining table, but uh, they wouldn't accept it. So this is a week and probably is already occurring that they're paring down those uh, 1,000 UAW demands that's been reported. Uh, but there are major set of questions that I think will have to be answered if there's going to be a strike. I mean, the UAW is pushing very hard for a four-day work week at full pay. Uh, they're going to have to figure out how to handle the downsizing that's associated with the EVs. Mm-hmm. They want a large wage increase to make up for the period during the pandemic and now the inflation. Uh, so that's going to be an important one. Um, General Motors, as of uh, a week ago, had not even given any demands to the union. They're just waiting for them to take all these demands off the table. So, I'm, But I'm sure right now they're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Um, uh, Ford did present a proposal offering a 9% wage increase over the term of the agreement, uh, plus a one-time uh Payment. I think that part is going to be as part of the agreement. I think that the companies want to keep the wage increases to a minimum, but one thing they can do is do a lower sort of annual pay raise and then, but give them a, a, a one shot uh, increase. The UAW is also in a particularly important situation regarding the battery plant. They want to organize them. And mm-hmm. so the UAW contracts with the big three are usually the pattern for a lot of the sub-assembly operations. Uh, At the same time, they want to organize these uh, battery plants. They have to have a contract that that works. And they also want to prevent continuing offshoring of work. Um, So it's, and I think there's one final sort of overlay in this sort of quick analysis of it. And that's politically. This is an election year. Right. And this is an important year for Biden and the Dems. And so they would like to see this handled as quickly as possible. And, and that's at the national level. At the union level, uh, Sean Fain, as newly elected president, by a small number, really is under pressure to produce a really good uh, uh, collective bargaining agreement uh, without disruption. Uh, if possible, but uh, I'm not sure that 
given the lateness in negotiations, whether they can hold off a strike. Uh, it might not be politically the best thing for Fain to do, given his newness and in an attempt to show how tough he is on negotiations. So it, it's very difficult to sort of analyze where we're going to go from here. They, they, nobody wants the strike, but sometimes strikes can be a type of theater, if you will, for uh, sort of the backdrop of what's happening in terms of the negotiations itself. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of people on strike right now. They may be joining them. We'll see what happens here a week from today. That's true. You know, you mentioned the union leadership here, and I'd like to pick up on that a little bit, if you don't mind. And you're familiar with what happened with the Teamsters in UPS. Again, Mm -hmm. a militant new guy, Sean O'Brien, and he made some promises. He said, you know what? We're going to get a good contract at UPS because we got screwed last time. Now, for the most part, he delivered. They got a pretty good contract. I don't know if you, if you took a look at this, but uh, uh, it was a ridiculously good uh, ratification vote on that. There was one local I know down in Florida that didn't go for it because of the, uh, the lack of speed with air-conditioned trucks. But when union leaders like Sean Fain and, uh, and Sean O'Brien, when they make promises to their membership, they better deliver. Otherwise, it's not going to be a union leader for very long. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about right now. The other part of this, John, is the profits. And <laughs> I was reading collectively, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis made $250 billion in North American profits from 2013 to last year. And in the first six months of this year, they raked in $21 billion in total profits. Now, that's got to be part of the equation here. I mean, it, there was a time, and you know this, John, where workers got a piece of the pie. I know there's some profit sharing going on, but boy, I tell you, there's a lot of catch up here. And you know what's going on with income inequality in the country. Uh, how does that play into all of this, John? Well, it certainly part of the the backdrop uh flash and that adds to the sort of the pressure because there have been changes in the labor market too uh where you industries during the pandemic saw both loss of work and pay and uh you saw it in certainly in, in healthcare negotiations and trucking negotiations uh there's where there were increases in workload that the unions have really tried to push forward with better collective bargaining uh, agreements and to catch up with what was lost during the pandemic years. At the same time, it's interesting, the pandemic has added another element to the negotiations and that's a reassessment of work-life balance. That's one of the reasons why I think the UAW is pushing for a four-day work week. People have gotten used to um, having more time with their families and during the pandemic. And at the same time, there's another element that I can't quite know for sure what it has meant to the UAW, but I think it's important. There is an increase in, in retirements and quiet quits that have gone on in the rest of the labor force is that it's also going to be very important to uh, the negotiation. Now, being an auto worker, as, one, as I was, oh, God, now over 50 years ago, uh, it's hard work. And uh, I think people, the question of, uh, do, do they really want to uh, take a job that 
wages are not enough, uh, hours and working conditions aren't right to sort of uh, uh, deal with the work-life balance. So that's another sort of issue that's in the background right now. Yeah. Uh, and I think the final part of that is the, and you kind of touched on it earlier when you were talking about what the ULA is doing. And that is the idea of technological changes and displacement, and which is quickly lowering the future employment opportunities and how fast you can uh, retread, reskill. That's going to be important to the these negotiations also. Mm-hmm. Um, you put that in the context that you just need fewer people to make EVs right now. Uh, it's it's a very difficult negotiations that not necessarily a strike's going to handle, but I think it's part of the dance and politics surrounding this negotiations and a new president of the UAW. There's a lot of dancing going on right now and especially in the next seven days, no doubt about that. You you know, while we're talking about the UAW, I, I saw a video on their website. It was posted yesterday, Justice for Belvedere and uh, Belvedere's an assembly plant in um, Illinois. And despite making almost $15 billion in profits last year, Stellantis suspended operations there. They're laying off more than 1,300 workers, and they're moving production to Mexico. So, you know, we're hearing about, you know, plants coming back to the United States, but they're still leaving us. They're still leaving us. Yeah, that's what I tried to say earlier, that there there is a context, too, of where production is going to be done. Will there be a continuous moving of uh, work offshore that also kind of shapes this negotiation, especially with somebody like Stellantis? Yeah. Never enough money. Never enough money. $14.7 billion in profits. But we got to do better. We got to go to Mexico where the wages are, what, 2 $3 an hour, something like that? Yep. Crazy. Just crazy. Well, thank you so much for uh, doing what you're doing. I want to drive you to the website, uh, workingclassstudies.wordpress.com. I didn't realize that you had so many countries that are that are reading your uh, post there. Uh, 43 posts since 2019 that were read over 94,000 times by readers in 176 countries. Do check that out. And say uh, hello to uh, Sherry Lincoln for me. But uh, let's keep in touch on this and more. Okay, brother? I'd be happy to. Okay, good talking to you, Flash. You got it, John Russo. Visiting scholar at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up next, Eileen DeVault at Cornell. She's a labor historian, and she'll be talking about what happened between 1880 and 1930 and compare that to what's happening today. Back in a few minutes here on America's Workforce. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's liuna.org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, 
we build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great iron worker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at Teamster.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. This is kind of a teachable moment on the show today. We just got off the phone with John Russo out of the Kalmanovitz School for Labor and the Working Poor. And joining us on our live line right now is Eileen DeVault. Eileen is a professor of labor history at a very, very distinguished university, Cornell University and their School of Industrial Labor Relations. And she teaches classes on labor and working class history. She's also the author of several books. You know, it's always important to know our history. And uh, Professor DeVault, you know, to, to start off the show, I think it's best to quote the poet Maya Angelou, who said, you can't really know where you're going until you know where you've been. I think that's really important, especially as we start our discussion today. And uh, and uh, unfortunately, there's some history that's being eliminated in some schools. That's another discussion, another discussion because of the politics we're involved. But let's talk about labor history. I understand you've been at Cornell. What is it now? Thirty-seven years? Is that correct, Eileen? Thirty-seven years. Oh my! I don't think and, and we should focus on that. We won't focus on that. You have, you have a history there in itself. But um, talk. You know what? Is, I have to ask you. Let's start right there because it's important that students of today know what happened, especially with unions and labor, going back to the 1880s. I mean, Labor Day actually started in, uh, what, 1894, and we saw a lot of organizing going back then. And then your, that period that you uh, referenced going to 1930, I mean, think about what was happening there under FDR. So how, how are they accepting this labor history? I mean, Cornell obviously focuses on this, but how are they... Um, how has it been going for you over the years, Arlene? Well, the students have really changed over the years. And, you know, some years they've been more business-oriented. And then the last few years, uh, they've been very interested in social movements of all types. And that includes the labor movement. So currently, I find my classes, I, I teach an introductory labor history class, which 
gets first-year students in the ILR school, and at least the students in the ILR school are pretty excited about learning the history of the labor movement. It's been really interesting. Okay, what do you attri- what do you attribute that to? Why, why is this happening? Well, I think the the latest surge in interest comes from the wide range of movements that have really ignited young people recently. There's a lot more interest in um, environmental issues, for example. There's the whole anti-school shootings, um, you know, and the the call for more. Um, gun safety legislation, and I've found students really interested, and they've already been active in high school in those kinds of movements. Um, They're also very excited about the Starbucks organizing. Uh, There are just lots of different things that are all coming together at this point. And this has been going on for the past couple of years, and we do have a union-friendly administration. The NLRB is paving the way right. for a lot of organizing, and we're seeing a lot of strikes right now. Let, let's talk about that, this <laughs> this so-called hot labor summer. And I know your school has done some research on this. In fact, I came across this uh, information just the other day. 320,000 workers have taken part in at least 230 strikes so far this year, according to uh, Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations, and yep. that's already higher than the 224,000 workers who took part in roughly 420 strikes last year. <laughs> so <laughs> you got young students that are interested in labor history, and they've got a lot of workers here that are saying, you know what, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Right, Go ahead. It's a very exciting moment in that way, and it's a very interesting moment as well, uh, where we really see a lot of changes from the past. And that's not only, you know, the the ILR, the Cornell, whatever they put in front of it, uh, Labor Action Tracker is a really great tool because the group that has uh, organized that and puts it out was interested not only in sort of massive strikes, which is what the Department of Labor tracks, but they were interested in even small labor actions and things that weren't even quite strikes, but were workers uh, carrying out various forms of protest uh, as well around their workplaces. And so they have picked up even more um, actions over the years than than we normally get if we just look at the official statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the Department of Labor, I don't remember their exact requirements, but the strike has to include a certain number of people. It has to last for a certain amount of time. And the Labor Action Tracker people said, wait, this doesn't make sense because this loses a lot of smaller, more spontaneous actions that are actually really important for building the larger movement itself. I think we really I'm glad have. you brought that up because uh, we have seen short strikes. Uh, one was at the New York Times mm-hmm. some months back, and I, I think it was like one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know some nurses have gone on strike for like three days. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so that kind of information is not really not really collected then, according to, well, at least by Cornell then, right? (laughs) 
Well, a lot of it is um, is not collected by the Department of Labor, although if it's a, a large number of workers um, going on strike for, I think it has to be at least one full day, uh, then the Department of Labor dutifully jots it down. But that doesn't uh, keep track of strikes where it may be for just one shift or something or half a day or something like that. And it also, the Department of Labor has traditionally only been interested in strikes that involved already established unions. And the Labor Action Tracker picks up a lot of things by groups of workers who um, who aren't in an official union yet, but are taking labor action anyway. Would that be like the Amazon Labor Union? They're not affiliated with any major union. They're an independent. Right, like the Amazon Labor Union, like um, uh, when Google workers a few years ago walked out over sexual harassment issues. Um, I, I can't. I think that's around the time when the labor action tracker started. I don't remember, but they would have counted that as a yeah. strike. The Department of Labor said this has nothing to do with labor. Um, this is not about a union, but it was um, thousands of workers across the world uh, all walking off their jobs at the same time to make mm-hmm. a point. Yeah, a oh, so. good example there. Is, did you follow what was going on in in, uh, in France when they wanted to uh, raise the retirement age? I mean, they pre- pretty much shut down the country over there. Right, right. That's a good example. The, yeah. the labor action tracker, however... Just does U.S. <laughs> they I, I, know their hands I know that. I know that. Well, a, as you know, labor unions are a little stronger in Europe. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. just <laughs> yeah, a little. They, just a little bit. So, yes. in in your research here, what what industries right now would you say are leading the organizing movement? Well, I think what's really interesting right now um, is that we have a combination both of industries and of sort of the age of unions involved, so that on one hand we have, you know, the Teamsters in their preparation for a possible strike that they ended up averting uh, with UPS uh, earlier this summer. We have the auto workers now um, who are, are set to possibly go on strike uh, very shortly. And these are unions that have been around for a long time that, in fact, trace their um, heritage back certainly into the 1930s and and the great uh, explosion of CIO unions in the 1930s. Um, But then at the same time, you have things like for the, the Teamsters, they also have had strikes this summer or labor actions anyway, of Amazon warehouse drivers um, in California. And they had a strike, uh, which was unofficial. Um, It wasn't a full union authorized strike action, but those workers were on strike for a good part of the summer, just as uh, the Teamsters were also building up for the potential UPS strike. And so you have that, you have all of the Amazon workers uh, organizing and the excitement 
over their winning uh, union elections across the country and really spreading rapidly to all sorts of places that you never would have thought uh, a small group of scrappy baristas ever would have been able to win a union election. So, so we've got both old established unions in mass production type industries like the auto workers, and we have these newer workplaces like Starbucks stores um, who are also involved in today's labor movement um, in, mm-hmm. in the hot labor summer. Yeah, it is a hot one in many different ways. <laughs> yes, it and it's funny, you, you mentioned the baristas. These are a lot of young people, and uh, the AFL-CIO came out with some data on that. 88% of young people in favor of unions today. Overall, it's like in the high 60s, low 70s. Mm-hmm. But when you when you look at the like the 18 to 30-year-olds, it's almost four out of five supporting unions today. It's a different environment out there, no doubt about it. Professor yeah. Eileen DeVault joining us on our live line right now. She's a labor historian at the Industrial School of Labor Relations at Cornell. I'm going to give you the website. It's ilr.cornell.com. Edu. Do check out what they do. We'll continue the conversation right after this. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, Canada and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Let's go back to uh, line number two. Welcome uh, one of our contributors today. That would be Professor Eileen DeVault of the Cornell University School of Industrial Labor Relations. She's a labor historian. She's done a lot of labor history over the years, going back to the 1880s to 1930 and today. And we're seeing a lot of strikes going on, a record amount of strikes. They call it a hot union summer, hot labor summer. Professor, what about some trends here? I mean, we're this is a game-changing moment in in working class history. I mean, you take a look, there's mentioned the 30s and you see the big rise of unions because well, they started the National Labor Relations Board and FDR was union friendly. And you take a look at Biden. Biden's not afraid to say the word union. So that's important and you got a good climate right now. I'm just wondering <laughs> 
with uh, with all your expertise studying these trends, what do you see happening here? Can this continue, in your opinion? Well, that's, of course, always the big question. And I think part of it has to do with what do we mean by continuing? Um, are workers going to continue to be uh, extremely dissatisfied with their situations as they see their employers um, gaining more and more profits? Yes, I think that's definitely going to continue. I also think that it varies depending on what what union and what part of the workforce we're talking about. And that's where I think that um, we, we both have to be very optimistic. You know, it's amazing that the Writers Guild um, has gone out on strike, that SAG-AFTRA has, has taken actors and other entertainers out on strike. Those things are really amazing, and that's going to be a long, hard battle because part of what they're dealing with are the rapid changes in technology and streaming services and all of that. Um, and then we have uh, the good old UAW and what's going to happen with their looming strike. Uh, those are questions of sort of um, the historical labor movement and what's happening with established unions. And I think in both those cases, we see established unions breaking free from some of their old patterns and saying, no, we're going to try things differently now. And I think that is fantastic, and I also think that that will probably continue to happen. Um, on the other hand, we have uh, the Starbucks baristas and, you know, the Trader Joe's workers and all of the other small retail establishments that were inspired by the Starbucks union wins. And their situation is very, very different because they now face what in some ways is even harder than winning a union election, which is bringing your employer to the bargaining table and actually sitting down and negotiating a union contract. And I think we have yet to see what's going to happen on that level uh, with those unions. But in, in order to survive uh, the wave of initial enthusiasm about union wins, they have to be able to um, to do that and to actually get the employers to bargain with them. So that's oh, going yeah. to tell us, you know, what's going to happen with that stream of union action. Yes, yeah, Starbucks is a good example there. They did some organizing at 300-plus stores, but they have yet to get a first contract. And, right, uh, right. Organizing yeah. is one thing. Getting that contract is another, no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, it, it really is, and that's, it's a long, long, hard struggle. And established unions you know, are working off a history of having gone through that struggle, although most union members today don't remember what that struggle was like for their unions. But yeah. like Starbucks now, uh, the UAW had similar sorts of issues back in the 1930s when they got started. So, you know, on one hand, the Starbucks workers should be inspired by these more established union uh, efforts. And on the other hand, they should also be nervous about it and and they have to understand that they're in for a lot of work 
and hopefully the these two sort of sides of of the union activism right now will talk to each other and will share the enthusiasm from the brand new union part and on the other hand the experience from the old old union regulars who can tell them this is what it's like to actually have a union to bargain a contract here are yeah. techniques to use and and that's the kind of exchange we really need to see I think if you want to simplify the message, those of you listening right now, especially the young ones that are involved in organizing, you know, there's a time that you had to listen to your dad or listen to grandpa for advice. (laughs) It's kind of a similar situation right now because uh, that old codger knows a whole lot. Okay. (laughs) Knows a whole lot. All right. It's important. And you can't just dismiss it. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, we have just about a minute left here. Uh, how do you feel? Do you feel that there's a new militancy going on, especially with the UAW and the Teamsters? And how does that play in everything right now, in your opinion? Um, I think there definitely is a new militancy. And I think that's an example of um, all of this militancy of Starbucks workers and all the other workers who have really had incredible risks in organizing uh, union drives. And I think that has inspired some of these older unions who might have, um, might have relaxed a little more <laughs> as their, their union contracts came due. And this time they're saying, no, we're not going to do that. We are going to demand uh, to get back all of the things we gave up over the past decade or so. Uh, Mm -hmm. where there was really a concessionary mood uh, among unions of, oh, we're not going to win, therefore we have to give, agree to have unequal pay for new workers versus the older workers, things like that. And it's exciting to see, you know, the Teamsters won back a lot of the things they had given up in past contracts. I hope the UAW can do some of the same. We'll find out soon enough. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Professor Eileen DeVault at the School of Industrial Relations at Cornell University, ilr.cornell.edu. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll be talking down the road, okay? Thank you. I enjoyed the talk. All right, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, the Food and Commercial Workers Union and Andy Strom, the latest coming from the National Labor Relations Board. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.